Hello, this is Terence McNally. The world is a crazy place and the battle for our attention has never been more fierce. Here are two conversations that speak to the challenges we face. The first today features my 2009 interview with Winifred Gallagher about her book, Wrapped, Attention and the Focused Life, in which she argues that the quality of your life largely depends on what you choose to pay attention to and how you choose to do it. In the second half, you'll hear my 2012 conversation with former Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan on his book, A Mindful Nation, How a Simple Practice Can Help to Reduce Stress, Improve Performance, and Recapture the American Spirit. Hello, I'm Terry McNally, and welcome to Free Forum. Today's show is about the brain and the mind, how we think and decide, and the role of attention and emotion. My big question, how can we use what we're learning about those things to live a better life and make a better society? If you're driving as you listen to this show, you're multitasking. If you're not driving, you're probably still multitasking. It's how most people use radio most of the time. So? Well, in her new book, Wrapped, Attention and the Focused Life, today's first guest, Winifred Gallagher, argues that the quality of your life largely depends on what you choose to pay attention to and that, quote, this is a quote from Winifred Gallagher, multitasking is a myth. You cannot do two things at once. The mechanism of attention is selection. It's either this or it's that. So we'll explore questions like that as well as can we train our focus and What's different about the way creative people pay attention? Why do we often zero in on the wrong factors when making big decisions? And we'll look at how what she's learned about attention and focus uh, can help us in our daily lives. Our second guest, Bernie Horn, has worked on politics and public policy for 30 years, and he's tired of the millions of Americans who favor progressive policies but end up voting for conservative philosophy. Horn calls these folks persuadables, and he believes they're more interested in philosophy than policy and that they make choices depending on how political questions are framed. His answer, develop a simple, clear, consistent, progressive philosophy that's in sync with progressive policies. We'll talk about that and we'll explore questions with him like, how do we change public opinion in the US on single payer or the war on drugs? And in California on Prop 13 and the two thirds vote for budgets. And how do we hold Obama's feet to the fire on some of those issues and on his pro Wall Street take on dealing with the economy? Oh. And here's, I'll give you this right at the top, a big tip from Winifred Gallagher. This is based on neuroscience. She recommends starting your workday by concentrating on your most important task for 90 minutes. At that point, your brain may need a break. But don't let yourself get distracted by anything else during that first hour and a half because it can take the brain 20 minutes to reboot after an interruption. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at new, innovative and provocative approaches to business, environment, health, science, politics, media, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better and I want to find out how. Winifred Gallagher's books include Just the Way You Are, How Heredity and Experience Create the Individual, The Power of Place, How Our Surroundings Shape Our Thoughts, Emotions, and Actions, House Thinking, Working on God, and perhaps to prove that not all her writing is quite that serious, it's in the bag, what purses reveal and conceal. Welcome, Winifred Gallagher, to Thank Free you. Forum. <laughs> I'm very happy to be with you. <laughs> but, you know, as I'm reading through your list, and I go, oh, you know, God, place, this, and then purses. Okay. Well, you know, that was my one girly book, and I enjoyed it enormously. <laughs> I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about. Now, I just read that list of your books. 
You've written about place, home, God, person, and so on. How did you become a writer, and how do you choose your topics? I, I think I'm one of the luckiest people in the world in that I get to um, think of a question that really absorbs me, and then I get to call up some of the smartest people in the world uh, on that subject and ask them what they think about it. Um, it's always just knocked me out that you can actually get paid to do something so cool. And certainly uh, attention is one of those subjects since I've been a little kid. Um, I've been interested in attention and aware that it was a very, very powerful tool that that we often don't use, to, as, as you say, to, to make uh, kind of the best possible life you can, you can have. Uh, I think attention is a very important uh, way to do exactly that, as a matter of fact. So... Um, in terms of writing about it, though, it took it took a kind of a, a, a what psychologists mildly call a negative event. Uh, five years ago, I came down with a very nasty and aggressive case of breast cancer, and that experience um, made me see how important it is, especially when you're facing a so-called negative event, to choose very carefully where you're putting your focus. Mm-hmm talk a little bit, you do talk about it in the book as well, talk about a bit about that decision and how well it did. Yeah. Um, rather um, astonishingly quickly after I got the, the bad biopsy from hell uh, news, I was walking uh, to the subway on the way home and thinking how I was going to have to break this news to my family. I have five kids and a husband. And uh, I've I saw with a kind of a, an unusual clarity that this negative event, this bad news, this illness, uh, wanted to monopolize all of my attention and very easily could if I let it. And that one way I was going to cope with the, the very real situation was to um, do some research, get the best medical team I possibly could find to sort of take care of my body, and then spend the rest of my time moving forward with my life. And as I say, I, I had this intuition uh, almost immediately upon getting the diagnosis. And seven months later, after four chemos, 15 hours of surgery, four more chemos, and six weeks of daily radiation, I was really amazed at how well it had worked. Uh, I was able to, um, most days, uh, work on the book that I had uh, contracted to deliver on time, um, take care of my kids. The youngest were twins who had just that very week started high school, uh, do my Christmas shopping, have friends over for dinner, keep up my 20-year yoga practice, and just generally, whenever possible, um, attend to my life. And I think that I can't say whether this had anything to do with my prognosis. I mean, here I am five and a half years later, uh, but I can certainly say that it was a, a very productive and, and meaningful time in my life, and I attribute it to that choice of just gently switching my focus uh, whenever I felt it drifting off uh, back onto moving forward with life. Mm-hmm. Very good. And how, how are you doing now? Oh, very well, thank you. Good, 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 good. Um, so that, that, I, I, that really, I mean, it, it's, 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 
it was striking when I when I read that in the book that that's that's what led you to it. Um, that, that you know very often there's a crucible of experience through which we learn and change. Yeah, well, we evolved. It's it's not an accident. We we evolved to pay more attention to negative events, to to worrisome thoughts and feelings, than to positive ones for the very good reason that. Uh, the discomfort and distress that they cause is meant to prompt us to do something about the underlying situation. So if you're worried about your sick child, your anxiety causes you to call the doctor. If you have a fight with your friend, the the upset you feel causes you to make amends. Uh, if you uh, witness injustice, the anger you feel uh, causes you to protest the injustice. So in these cases, uh, paying attention to a negative emotion is fulfilling the right purpose, the problem-solving purpose. Unfortunately, however, we spend a lot of time stuck attending to negative thoughts and emotions that have no positive focus. Uh, she always gets the breaks, or uh, I'll never lose those 10 pounds no matter what I do. You know, the, these kinds yeah, of thoughts, yeah. very easy um, to, to, to spend a lot of time um, uh, focused on them. Uh, so that really, the, to protect the quality of your daily experience, you need to learn to focus away from pointless negative thoughts that serve no problem-solving purpose to something productive. Um, I, I am not using the word happy. I am not uh, trying to suggest for a minute that people can be happy all the time, uh, and I, I even try to, to not use the word positive overly much. Uh, because it conveys that there that that would you know a sort of a Pollyanna approach to life. I'm not saying that at all. There were when I was ill, there were many days that I was not particularly happy, and I was certainly not in a Pollyanna frame of mind. But it's the difference between saying I don't feel very well, and I could stay here in bed and suck my thumb and watch HBO reruns all day, or I could get up, you know, put on my sweatsuit, go across to my office, and get some work done. Right. And at the end of the day. I would inevitably feel better if I had made that latter decision. Exactly. Let me let me tell people I'm Terry McNally and I'm speaking with Winifred Gallagher. She's the author of Wrapped, R A P T, Wrapped, Attention and the Focused Life. Is there a website that I could direct people to if they wanted to learn more? Uh, I'm, afraid, I'm afraid that I'm I seem to be one of the few writers in America that doesn't have a website. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Um, and let me just say, you know, this this notion of in some sense sort of vestigial instincts that we have. In other words, what you're saying is that it is, there is survival value in the tendency to focus on the negative, to notice the negative. Um, and I've looked at other things, like in other words, how are we going to deal, and I know this ends up being a topic within your book, how are we going to deal with things like climate change, the end of peak oil, things like that, when um, the we're, we're, we've evolved to react to immediate stimuli, you know, the, 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 the uh, a crash of thunder, the, the roar of a lion, and not far-off conceptual abstract things. So we have this instinct that served us in a world where everything was tangible and about survival, and now we live in what is, to a great extent, a symbolic world of thoughts and impressions and all. And, and it seems as a great deal of, of, of how our individual lives and how our society is going to do is how we deal with that, that conflict in a way. Well, I think the human mind is a wonderful thing, and as you can see, just within the last three to five years, the, the level of consciousness about some of those issues has raised a great deal. Uh, in fact, uh, kind of uh, unbelievably, <laughs> considering what it was like uh, for the last yeah. 
the previous eight years, uh, we even seem to be having some government policies <laughs> changing in the right direction. So um, I'm I'm certainly not um, not at all hopeless about that. I think I think uh, a point that you you bring up here that's very important is. Um, there's a, can be a confusion about trying to keep your frame of mind productive and generative. Does that mean that you can't? Uh, what about problems like you know torture at Guantanamo or the state of our um, supermax prisons or other very difficult and painful subjects? Am I suggesting that that you focus away from them? No, indeed, the the issue here is is to you, to the skillful use of your attention. So that even when very bad things are going on in your life, very negative things like an illness or losing your job or having your your house foreclosed, you can also you, you of course you need to pay attention to those things in a in a constructive way. But there also can be very beautiful and meaningful things going on in your life at the very same time. And the trick is to to um, to pay attention to both things appropriately. Appropriately. I think we had a, a very sad, um, well, I've been, in fact, while I was traveling around uh, out, out west a few weeks ago, we had a very sad uh, uh, example of this in um, David Kellerman, who was executive, an executive at Freddie Mac, the, the insurance um, uh, mortgage uh, corporation, um, was apparently so consumed with his um, feelings of of remorse about how how badly that that enterprise was doing and how many people were losing their homes. He was barely uh, coming home to change his shirt, just 24/7 working on this terrible economic crisis. And until the whole world must have seemed that it was nothing but that awful abyss to him, and he went home and hung himself in his basement. Mm. Uh, and I think you know there are a lot of people going through very difficult times in the country right now. But you know he somehow I I'm, I don't I, I I don't mean to in any way uh, judge his action. We can never know what was going through his mind. But he had a a wife, a beautiful little daughter. Uh, he was a young, healthy man, uh, lovely home. Uh, somehow all of that um, he was so intently focused on this crisis that he lost touch mm-hmm. with the other uh, with things, the other things yep. in his life. So, you know, it, it's, it's not, it, it, the, the real effort is the skillful use of your attention. Mm-hmm. And as you said, uh, yeah, not to ignore um, what might be termed negative, but to focus, as you say, you, you, you say repeatedly, appropriately, to, to those ways that can make you productive, that can, that can help you find your way out of a forest if you're trapped in it, rather than keep going in circles. That's right. Um, I think this is one of those books, by the way, that has some big ideas and a lot of really tasty nuggets, you know, of little things. That, and I, I, I realized as, as I was reading it, I, I could go, well, we could talk about that, we could talk about that, we could talk, and, <laughs> and we're not going to have time. So we're going to talk about some of the big ones, and then if I have time at the end to shoot you some of the little quirky questions that occurred to me as I was reading it. But sure. first of all, how do you define attention? Attention is the brain's ability to select a focus. It's only in the last 10 years or so that scientists have figured out what happens when you pay attention in the brain. When you focus on something, your brain kind of photographs, enhances that sight or sound or thought or feeling, which actually then becomes part of your reality, part of your kind of mental album of the world, if you will, uh, which means that it can affect how you feel. That's why it's so important that you choose carefully 
you, you don't want to say this project is too hard for me. Rather, you want to say, I'll give it a try, because that's the thought that's going to become part of your reality. Oh, so one thing, one point, by the way, in what you just, in, in the example you just used, is that attention obviously is not just into the outside world, but also to the interior. Absolutely. It's your world in, internal and external. So it's not just sensory information coming in from the outside world. It's your, all your thoughts and feelings. Mm-hmm. We have two ways of paying attention, uh, which, which are uh, really uh, very sophisticated, but I think uh, we sometimes don't real, realize the full potential of the second way. Uh, first of all, we have what scientists call bottom-up attention. This means that you will, without trying, you will involuntarily focus on on something very salient or compelling that happens in your environment. For example, if you smell smoke, if you hear a crack of, uh, if you see a flash of lightning and hear a crack of thunder, um, flashing red lights, a loud scream. (laughs) A siren. You don't, don't, yeah, a siren. You don't have to... um, Think about uh, whether you're going to pay attention to that. You will. Nature ensures that you will. But we also have what's called top-down attention, and this is a voluntary form of attention. So if bottom-up attention asks, what do you, if if bottom-up attention asks, what's the most important thing going on here, the most obvious thing to focus on, top-down attention asks, Terrence, what do you want to focus on? Mm-hmm. And that's our tool for controlling our experience, so that even if there is um, some noise out in the street, if you have a report to write, you can say, I'm, I'm going to shift my attention from that noise out on the street and, and focus on my, re- on my report, and you can do that. Mm-hmm. I'm Terry McNally, speaking with Winifred Gallagher uh, about attention, focus, uh, and her book, Wrapped, Attention in the Focused Life. Um, you... Uh, you say that multitasking is a myth, and I, I quoted you at the top that it doesn't exist. Uh, but I know that, for instance, as I said, your book is popular on audible.com. Now, my guess is people are doing something else. I developed a habit. Um, I lived in a house with six kids, uh, five other kids and my, my parents and so on, and I developed a habit as a child of listening to music while I did my homework, mm-hmm. while I read, while I, and I, I have kept that habit you know, throughout my life. My sense was that it was actually helping me because it was filtering out things that would distract me with one thing. Right. Just talk well, about this multitasking and, and the kinds of gimmicks that we use. All right. There are a couple of questions there. Um, yeah. Just to get the most obvious one out of the way first, there is research that shows that particularly teenagers um, often do their homework better if they're listening to music. <laughs> Maybe so much is going on in their lives that music actually reduces the stimulation level. Um, but multitasking, as the term is, is, is currently used in our culture, is a myth. Yes, you can, you, can listen to, uh, you can listen to your car radio and drive at the same time. You can listen to an audible.com book while you're taking your fitness walk, uh, for sure, because those two activities are not using the same circuitry in the brain. The problem comes up principally when you're using the language circuitry in your brain, which we do, you know, whenever we're reading, talking, um, uh, listening, anything, anything that involves language, when you're trying to do two of those activities at once, 
uh, the cla- my classic example, just because I've done it so many times, is at the end of the day, I'm returning phone calls and I'm trying to clear out my email. Yep, exactly. I call somebody on the phone and they say hello, and I go, who's this? <laughs> because I forgot who I called because I was also trying to get rid of some email. And so what you're saying is is that, I really appreciate the clarification. It's when you're using the same system and you're trying to do two tasks with the same system. Particularly and language systems, which, you know, which accounts for almost all of the work we do. Exactly. This is why um, when, you're, when you're working, if you're at your desk and you're writing a report in your office, if you're continually getting off the phone, get, uh, looking up and picking up your phone and answering phone calls, you're jerking your your verbal circuitry from one task to another, and that's why it takes so long to take to reboot your brain. Right, right. Okay, so I think you're, you've led to it, but I I want to ask two um, sort of these big questions, and I'll, I'll give you both of them so you can answer both of them. Uh, by the way, this is Winifred Gallagher, author of Wrapped: Attention and the Focused Life. Um, what did you learn that could most help listeners in terms of productivity? So that a big tip in terms, and what did you learn that could most help listeners in terms of well-being. Mm. I would say it's probably the same the same tip. I think if, if tip almost uh, undermines its importance in in my humble opinion. It's very important for you to choose where you're going to pay where you're going to place your attention. Uh you're when you're conscious, whenever you're awake, you are attending to something all the time. And if you don't choose wh- what you're focused on, something or someone will choose it for you. So as you go about your day, just remember what what my great hero William James said, my experience is what I agree to attend to. Mm, The agreement is the key thing there, isn't it? You decide what your experience, he means like the quality of your daily life, the quality of your daily life depends on what you attend to, to a very large extent. So if you're just uh, going about your day waiting for life to lob some stimuli at you, then you're living, your life is a reaction, not a creation. Not, it's, it's something that you do in response to stuff that happens to you rather than something that you're, you're crafting with your decisions. And if I could you know, urge people to just try one thing, it would be when you get up in the morning, try to prioritize where you want to put this special um, I, I think of I, I think of attention now as mental money. Mm-hmm. We we, ha- we have a, a a finite amount of attention to last us our whole lives. Where are you going to invest that mental money? You should be as careful with it as you are um, with your greenbacks. Yeah, and time is money, and time is attention. And time and attention are are so they're close. They're the same. Yeah, uh, and, and and you know, as as several researchers have pointed out to me. What is the first thing that very, very, very wealthy people do when they acquire money? They, they start flying on, uh, on jets, and uh, they, they, they start taking charge of their time. They don't spend time waiting in line. They delegate. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's the ultimate luxury, and I think all of us actually have much more opportunity to direct our attention and take charge of our time. It's the single the single simplest and most powerful thing you can do to improve the quality of your life. So, okay, so you're saying both... time focused on things that are productive and generative. Yeah. Let me ask, again, uh, just because I want to get really specific on that one. You say uh, that thing that I read in the intro, uh, you know, the first 90 minutes uninterrupted, focused on your most important uh, project or whatever. Um, 
in your experience or what you've learned, uh, this is going to sound crazy, but I'm, I'm trying to make it really practical. Uh, you can do breakfast, meditate, exercise first, look at the newspaper, and then sit down and spend your 90 minutes? I mean, where does, yeah, where, not, is there something about the brain having to be fresh? It's, it's not, um, I don't think it's so essential that, that you spend your first 90 minutes of the day focusing. What I would say is that when you have something important to do that really ah. re- requires your mm-hmm. concentration, whether you're writing a book or writing a report or uh, helping your kids with their homework, when you have something important to do, Focus on that activity, ideally, for about 90 minutes and, and shield yourself from distractions. Put your, turn your machines on, you know, on auto pickup. I've disabled the little you have mail voice on my computer. I don't want my <laughs> I never turned it on. <laughs> telling me when I'm going to read my email. I'll decide when I'm going to read my email. I often think I have a lawnmower. I don't let my lawnmower tell me when to cut the grass. So right. why should I let my BlackBerry tell me well, when I have to, like, stop doing what I'm doing? You know, Winifred, what, what's so sort of confounding about that is that the great, one of the great things about email is that it does allow you to respond on your own time. I mean, when we used to deal with phones, it was like we had to get them while they were there. Now we can email what we want. We can read when, when we want. We can respond when we want. And yet, I think you're right. We become addicted to it even so. Yeah, I think addiction is a, if I had it to do over again, that's something that I would pay more attention to in, in the reporting for the book. I think that we, in a very real sense, um, we evolved to, to uh, be a very attracted to novelty, to what's new and what's, what's fresh. Uh, for the for the very basic reason that it, that back in the days when we were hunters and gatherers, uh, we were likelier to make dinner out of something that was new on the scene <laughs> than something that had been around forever. Right. So uh, we do crave novelty, and I think these uh, electronics um, supply it. Yeah. And I know one thing you said is, why look for what new email have I gotten until you finish responding to the ones you even say, you know, it might have been you know, something important that you've got to respond to, and yet we're still drawn to, let me check the new ones while those still sit there. Let me finally, if I may, we've got about a minute and a half. Could you talk a little bit about flow, which is, I think, related to, to uh, attention? Sure. Uh, attention is not just a great tool to make you more productive. It's, it's, it's a, a great way to improve the quality of your life and make it more enjoyable. The, whether, whether you want to call it peak experience or flow, a lot of research has now shown that, that um, when people feel they're functioning at their best, they're, they're really enjoying themselves, they say, gee, where did that time go? Or, gosh, I was born to do this activity. That what they're involved in, they are totally focused on an activity that is both challenging and enjoyable. So as opposed to like lying on the couch watching HBO reruns, they're doing something that is requiring their skill at a level that they're just just about able to match. There's a close match between the demand of the activity and their level of skill. So this is why people so much enjoy playing uh, with a with a playing tennis with a perfectly matched partner, or uh, playing chess, or uh, working on a difficult piano piece that's really sort of pressing your the limits of your ability to play. Skiing, doctors, surgeons when they're operating flow uh, as much as people who those people who jump out of airplanes with 
parachutes, I right. don't know what they're called. But uh, attention is, is really makes life worth living. It's not just it's not just something that makes you more productive. It it, it it's it's um, it's the sweet mystery of life. Yeah, um, that's we're talking when we're talking about flow. We're talking about the work of uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, um, and uh, I highly recommend his work, especially the Evolving Self, which is my favorite book of his. But just so that I can help listeners just quickly, he says when you have clear goals and feedback and that stretch that tension between um, skill and challenge that you're that's your most likely to uh, to experience flow and and my suggestion is in addition to focusing your attention from the top down as as Winifred's been talking about is to try to uh, set your life up where as often as possible you have those flow conditions as well and uh, and life should be it'll be the same life but it'll feel differently <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay. I enjoyed talking with you. Okay. Again, the book is Wrapped, Attention and the Focused Life. I've been speaking with Winifred Gallagher. Um, please keep up the good work. This is Terrence McNally. In the second half, you'll hear my 2012 conversation with former Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan on his book, A Mindful Nation, How a Simple Practice Can Help Us Reduce Stress, Improve Performance, and Recapture the American Spirit. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum. Are you feeling stressed and anxious these days? In addition to whatever personal challenges you might face, are you worried about the economy, jobs, housing foreclosures, justice, fairness, wars, and threats of new wars, climate change, environmental pollution, and our failing education and healthcare systems, and finally the domination of democracy by huge corporations and the super rich? Well, so am I, and, and so is today's guest, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan. He recognizes all those concerns, and he offers a radical solution, radical in its original meaning of having to do with the roots of things. He's written a book, A Mindful Nation, How a Simple Practice Can Help Us Reduce Stress, Improve Performance, and Recapture the American Spirit. Ryan has a daily practice of mindful meditation, and now he's advocating that the spread of similar practices could help heal us, not just as individuals, but as a nation. And his book is filled with examples of how mindfulness is being successfully applied in education, in healthcare, even in the military. Imagine a mindful congressman who imagines a mindful nation. <laughs> On Free Forum, we explore the lives, work, and ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at new, innovative, provocative approaches to business, environment, health, science, politics, media, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. Tim Ryan is currently serving in his fifth term, representing Ohio's 17th Congressional District, and he was first elected at the age of 29. He's a member of the House Armed Services Committee, the House Budget Committee, co-chairman of the Congressional Manufacturing Caucus, and co-chairman of another caucus that has to do with uh, addiction and recovery. And Congressman Ryan has a daily mindfulness practice, as I said, and is the author of A Mindful Nation. Welcome, Tim Ryan, to Pacifica and Free Forum. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for that nice introduction there. <laughs> okay. Um, I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about. So can you share briefly your path to the work that you do today? Feel free to note mentors, turning points, moments of decision, and not just about mindfulness, but how you chose to, you know, go into public service, become a congressman, and how, you know, the mindfulness piece fits into that. Well, you know, like most people, I had a lot of really great role models growing up. I had a, a beautiful uh, mother, Italian mother, uh, who prayed the rosary a lot, along with uh, some Italian grandparents who lived a couple blocks down who prayed the rosary a lot. 
and they were just committed people. They, my grandfather was a usher at church, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church in, in Niles, Ohio. My grandmother was a part of the rosary group. My mother helped out at the festivals and at the school, and a lot of activism, a lot of volunteerism, primarily through the church and my grandfather's union. He was a steel worker and really grew up in an environment where, by watching those uh, role models, they showed us, my brother and I, on that uh, it's about caring about other people. It's about helping other people. And, uh, you know, spent some years in Catholic school and uh, at one point had a, a priest, uh, Father Crumley, teach me centering prayer. Really? And that was where kind of the real meditative side started, you know, on and off, flirted with different kinds of meditation since then. Uh, and ultimately, you know, come from an older industrial area that was pretty hard hit economically a lot of corruption uh, many years ago, and I just kind of rolled the dice and thought, you know, I wanted to serve and saw politics as a real opportunity to do that, more at the local level, quite frankly, than the national level. And then that evolved into, uh, you know, in kind of a parallel track with my interest in in meditation and different world religions and learning more and understanding more about that until in 2008, uh, I was uh, a Democrat and had spent most of my career uh, working to get the Democrats back in charge of uh, Congress and working very closely with Nancy Pelosi. And eventually in 2006, we took the House back. But it was a very busy time, very active, a lot of traveling, a lot of fundraising, kind of the necessities of politics. Was involved in the 2008 election between uh, Hillary and uh, the president. And then into the, in about that summer, uh, I realized I was 35 years old and well on my way to being burnt out by the time I was 40. You know, the technology, the information, the travel, the fundraising. And uh, found a five-day silent retreat led by John Kabat-Zinn two days after the November election. And uh, checked my two Blackberries at the door after the election and uh, didn't talk to anyone, didn't write, didn't read, didn't do anything but... Uh, John, what John Cabotson told me to do, <laughs> and most of that was uh, spend time in silence. And in the middle of that retreat, I had about a 36-hour period of of complete silence, as well as the other participants in the retreat, and really just had a, a profound experience of being in the present moment. And it reminded me a lot of playing sports back in the day as a kid, um, and when you'd be in the zone. And and thought this needs to be in schools. This needs to be in our healthcare system. Someone needs to teach us to every kid in America. And uh, went on a journey. Met John after the retreat, and he said sent me on a journey to meet the scientists, the educators, the healthcare practitioners who are implementing mindfulness. And ever since then, I've had a daily mindfulness practice, and uh, found my passion in life is to figure out how to get mindfulness implemented into the world around us. So one thing I hear is that you're still having to do all the things you were doing. Uh, yeah, you're, you're the still world a congressman. Go away. <laughs> right, you're still a congressman. We've still got other problems. You still have to run for re-election. You still have to raise money, and you not only find time for the mindfulness practice, but you wrote a book, and now you have another cause uh, on this one. Um, so in fact, you're busier than you were before. Yeah, in some ways I really am. Um, but I, as I said, I have I feel like I really have a new energy to my work because, you know, like most of us who have a, a meditation practice, you know, you think like your meditation practice is one area of your life and then your work and your family and every, everything else is another 
area of your life and never the two shall meet. And really what you do learn over time of practicing and reading and trying to really understand what this is about is that it's about bringing this to your life. It's about you know, being mindful as you are acting in your life, as you are participating uh, in in the opera, you know, as you're participating in the game, to be mindful. And that has really come together for me since I wrote the book, because there was no more, oh, I do this on the side. It is now like, this is what I do, this is what I advocate for. And yeah, the world doesn't go away. Very good. I'm speaking with uh, Congressman Tim Ryan, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, about his new book, A Mindful Nation. Uh, Tim will be appearing uh, Monday, June 4th, uh, tomorrow night, 7.30 a.m. at the Broad Stage in Santa Monica. And for tickets and information, go to Insight LA. That's one word, insightla.org, and check special events. Um, Okay, how did the book happen? Well, I went on, the, you know, I went on this journey that John Kabat-Zinn sent me on to meet the scientists, the healthcare, and the, ed- the workers and the educators. And as I went and traveled the country and met them, I was just so impressed and inspired by the work that they were doing. You know, I just thought, man, this needs to be a book, and it has huge policy implications. So, you know, someone in the policy area should probably write it, and it should be a book that. Uh, really is down to earth and that could communicate to, say, people in Ohio, for example, of why the uh, this uh, stuff can be very beneficial. And, uh, you know, I was felt like I was just the person to do it. And obviously had talked to John Kabat-Zinn about it very early on, and he was excited about the prospects of that and the contribution that a book could make. But it really was the inspiration I was getting from Richie Davidson at the University of Madison, uh, Wisconsin at Madison and Linda Lantieri and Goldie Hawn and, and uh, Saki Santorelli at UMass uh, Center for Mindfulness. These people were so inspiring to me. They're pioneers. You know, they are pioneers of, I think, what can completely transform our society uh, as we continue to get mindfulness out. And I just had to write the book and get a platform to be able to talk about this in a really down-to-earth way. Yeah, one of the things I really like about your book, uh, Congressman Tim Ryan, is that I've, I've uh, well, I have a mindfulness practice, and I've uh, had uh, John, actually, I had, we'll talk about this when we get to uh, schools, but I had John and Myla on uh, when they did Everyday Blessings, the uh, oh. mindful parenting book, which was just a real treat, and have had him on since. Sharon Salzberg, Jack Cornfield, Richie Davidson, um, all these folks. And, all the all-stars. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things I like about your book, because I've looked at all of them, is uh, you really spell out, maybe not more than, than, than all of them, but, but more than most of them, What's happening in this program and this program and this program? And then you have that wonderful list of resources in the back mm-hmm. that, um, that tells people where they can go to learn more. And that's what I think is a, is a wonderful I – mean, it's a, it's, it's a sh- fairly short book. What is it, uh, 220, something like yeah, that? Yeah, something right around there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it's not it's, – this is not a big tome to pick up. But in addition to your own personal experience, in addition to your, you know, your advocacy in it, you also – take us to, to people who are working with schools, people that are working with hospitals, people that are working with the military, et cetera, et cetera, and one by one, and, and as well as the scientific experiments. So I really praise you for that. Let me ask you about this. What has been the reception among first your colleagues in Congress and then your constituents? 
Well, it's really interesting. I, I must say, we had uh, two of my colleagues, uh, Congressman Joe Crowley from New York and Congressman John Larson, had a book party for me last night. And, uh, you know, we had many members of Congress come in and out with a real genuine interest of what this was about, asking me questions. And since the book has come out, there's been articles uh, in Politico, for example, uh, a D.C. kind of Capitol Hill newspaper, um, you know, there, we did a talk here in Washington, Book Notes, or Book TV did something on C-SPAN. And I've been amazed at the people who have come up to me and said, now tell me more about this. Tell me what this is like. Members of Congress. Uh, I had a gentleman, conservative Republican today, come up to me, and he's like, dude, I started doing what you were saying, no man. Kidding. And he's like, I'm so stressed out. I can't take it anymore. And uh, he says, I started meditating. <laughs> and this is... You know, this is based on uh, me just talking to him briefly and him reading some of the local, like, Capitol Hill newspaper articles about the book. And I think everyone's open, and members of Congress are as stressed out, if not more stressed out, than uh, other Americans, just the travel, the family, the stress, the fundraising, the craziness. So there's a real openness here to it. Um, and then I would also say my constituents, same same there. I mean, I was in a bowling alley a couple weeks ago at a family uh, uh, birthday party, and there was a gentleman there, blue jeans and a NASCAR hat on in in Warren, Ohio, and, and asked, started asking me about the book and how interesting the, he was in the topic of the book. And it's just, it's crossing all of these different demographic, geographic, political lines because we're all in the same spot. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think one of the things also is that you yourself are an unlikely, if you will, an unlikely person to to write this book. And so yeah. I think the, the the unlikely interested other person looks and says, well, if that unlikely person has it's made that much difference and he's that convinced, maybe it's open. Maybe it's something for me, too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I'm not to I mean, it's just who I am. I'm a six foot four, 220 pound former quarterback from Ohio. Yeah, it's Catholic. And, you know, a, a Rush Belt Democratic politician who, you know, grew up in an Italian community at the Italian festival. And my grand, you know, I mean, I just check every box yeah. of like what's a normal Ohio uh, kid grow up like. That was me, you know, and, and here I am. And that's why people were like, really? You do that? And my, my colleagues were stunned that I not only wrote a book, but that I wrote a book about meditation. <laughs> um, and it's been great because they're, they, uh, you can see the guard come down. That's, because that's, they, that's think, wonderful. they look at me and they say, wow, if you do this, it must be something to it. Yeah. No, I mean, I, when, when I first, uh, someone offered me the book, I went, a, a congressman has written a book on mindfulness? How can, you know, how can I turn that down? Let me tell people, I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking with Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio about his new book, A Mindful Nation, How a Simple Practice Can Help Us Reduce Stress, Improve Performance, and Recapture the American Spirit. And you can learn more at amindfulnation, one word, dot O-R-G. This is Free Forum, and you can visit me at terrencemcnally.net, one word, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. They're the same website, and you can learn more about the show, guests, podcasts, and so on. You can listen to podcasts there or at iTunes. You can sign up there at iTunes to have it delivered to you weekly for free. And you can also sign up there or email me at T-E-McNally, T-E-McNally at Mac.com to sign up for a weekly email that I send out telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and usually two or three articles to give you a background on the issues. Okay, one, one thing I was curious about, do you think that the link of meditation to 
Eastern spiritual practices is an obstacle for some people? Uh, or do you think that's changed over time? The reason I say that is when I first uh, was, got in touch with meditation, uh, it was Maharishi Mahashyogi. It was transcendental meditation. It was definitely had an Eastern influence. I didn't take it up until I read Herbert Benson's book, The Relaxation Response. Mm-hmm. So I waited till it was, you know, dressed in Western clothes and, and, and you know, before I took it up. And I, I wonder if you think that that, that 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 has already happened, that people now don't see it so much as an Eastern spiritual practice. I, well, there's obviously still going to be some out there, you know, the Pat Robertsons of the world who are, you know, telling people to throw break Buddha statues, you know, that have a level yeah. of intolerance. And that yoga's bad because of that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And and I basically, I think we've come such a long way because, one, I think out of necessity, I think people are really recognizing that, um, one, this is very helpful, but two... This is about breathing. I mean, you know, we're, we're not talking about anything other than breathing in and out, in and out, and maybe try to pay attention to it a little bit as you're going along and take a little break to stop and really be in the present moment. And I do. I mean, you hear words like Zen and karma being used in the, you know, uh, as common parlance today, you know, of, of just people around. They um, are, are using it in ways that, they never have before. So I think it's really starting to infuse our society in a way to where all of that mystical kind of approach to it uh, is not being seen as necessary. And we talk about that in the book. And actually, um, you know, I like to talk about in the book that, hey, you know what, you can practice mindfulness and still keep your religion. That's what I was going to say. You're, you're still a practicing Catholic. And for you, the two fit together fine. Yeah. Well, you're, you know, when you're at the Mass, you're actually at the Mass. You know, I, I, that's my favorite part about being a Catholic is going to the Mass. Not that I go as much as my mom would like me to go, but when I do go, I just really enjoy the ritual. And, and after practicing mindfulness, you can enjoy it in a deeper way. I, I talk a lot about the one of the great Simpson episodes where Homer Simpson is in the uh, church, packed church, and he's got his headphones on listening to the football game. And in the middle of a quiet period in church, he jumps up and screams because his team's running for a touchdown. And no one else is doing anything, and they all turn around and look at him and catch him. And so I ask, are you at church or are you listening to the football game? And with mindfulness, if you're at church, you'll be at church. If you're praying the rosary, you'll be praying the rosary. If you're at the ritual, you'll be in, in present for the ritual. There's no reason why it has to not be that way and why you can't bring mindfulness to that particular religion. Very good. And now what, what you're saying there is, what it does is it doesn't take you somewhere else. It takes you where you are. Right. And it brings you home where you are. Um, one of the things I really remember uh, when I first uh, read and interviewed uh, John and Myla Kabat-Zinn's book, um, and by the way, for, for listeners, if that Zinn sounds familiar, Myla is Howard Zinn's daughter, um, that it's about seeing your children. It's about hearing your children. It's about being present with your children. Now, you tend to take that and say this could have an effect not just on, within our families, but in our whole nation. H- how is it you see that happening? Well, it's a blossoming. It's not a magic wand. And it's, you take everyone in the book. You take the scientists, the educators. You take the healthcare practitioners the doctors, the nurses, the healthcare workers, you take people in the military that are doing it now, in the Marines, for example, in the Army, 
you take some of the veterans organizations and different groups that are starting to deal with vets, you really begin to see how this all ties the room together um, with, you know, you begin to uh, use this uh, for teachers with professional development and also in our colleges of education. And you incorporate these programs into our schools. So kids are beginning to learn mindfulness and social and emotional learning in our schools. We start to train our doctors and our nurses through uh, the schools and the professional developments and the CLEs and the different things that they have to get to get, you know, recertified. You begin teaching them mindfulness so that doctors are not immediately prescribing medication. They're first saying, okay, now what's going on with you, mate? Why don't you try practicing mindfulness here? I'll teach you how. Do it for 15 minutes a day in the morning for two weeks and then come back. And if you still have high blood pressure, then we'll talk about medication, but it won't be the first thing we do. Then you talk about, so now the doctor's teaching the patients who may have a kid that's in the school with the kid learning it at the school. And then it's incorporated in the after school programs and the summer school programs and the summer camps like they're doing out here in, uh, in Bethesda where Tara Brock's doing a program. Um, we've heard of Upward Bound. She has a program called Inward Bound, and it's a, basically a mindfulness camp for kids in the summer. And then, you know, you start to see, and then you have veterans. For example, they're using mindfulness now to train um, uh, Marines, not to be better killers, but to better handle their emotions. And John Kabat-Zinn's been involved in some of these studies and others, real marquee players in the mindfulness movement, saying this is really crucial to get this in the, into the military. Well, the average stay for a Marine in the Marines is five or six years. So they can learn mindfulness and then go back to our communities. And then there's all these teacher integration programs for people in the military. You begin to see how this, these seeds can continue to get planted. And over, I don't think that too long of a period of time, five or ten years, people will be slowing down and being more mindful. And I think that will change the way uh, we address the issues you talked about at the very beginning of the program, this huge gap, uh, this huge issue of inequality in the United States, the poverty issue in the United States, how are we going to deal with that, the food systems and what we put on our food and how we transport our food in the United States and how do we move to more farmer's markets, more local produce, more um, bike trails, more downtown developments, more you know policies that uh, prevent urban sprawl, how do we redesign our cities? How do we do manufacturing in a more energy-efficient way? How do we have policies that move us towards more renewables? I mean, all of these things aren't going to happen until we all stop and say, what the hell are we doing right now? <laughs> we're not going down the right road. And, oh, by the way, nobody's really happy about what we're doing right now. And all the polling will show you that. And if we just slow down... We can then recalibrate like a GPS recalibrates when you get lost. Hold on, changing route here, and that's what we need to do. But that doesn't happen until we slow down and we start planting some of these seeds. So, it is, so your sense is if individuals, one by one, by thousand, by thousand, by million, begin to slow down and be more present in the actual moment, more mindful of what their life is actually like at that moment – that those sorts of policies that seem to make sense will be more likely. Right. Start where you are. People say, well, what's my, what am I supposed to do? Well, if you're practicing mindfulness, you know, let's all listen to what it's telling us. Start where you are. Wherever you go, there you are, as John Kabat-Zinn's book tells us. So if you're a mindfulness practitioner and you're in Los Angeles and you have kids in schools and you want to make a difference and change the way the world is, don't, you know, buy a Mindful Nation. In the back, there's a resource section, and there's 
uh, groups and organizations who have already implemented mindfulness into uh, classrooms. So figure out who those organizations are, learn about what they did, and then start running local mindfulness practitioners for the school board. Contact your state representative and ask, are the state policies helping implement things like mindfulness and social-emotional learning in the schools? And that's just one example. What if you have a, a family support group for veterans or soldiers that are you know, over uh, in the Middle East right now or in Afghanistan right now? Wherever you are, start something and start fertilizing it and start watering it and putting sunshine on it. And people are doing this all over the country, which is another reason why I wanted to do the book, because I think a lot of people involved in this work don't realize there are other people in other fields doing the exact same thing. And my idea with A Mindful Nation is to throw gasoline on that those fires and, and really get this thing burning so that we can begin to have these changes. But, yeah, it's a blossoming. It's very organic. There's not going to be a Department of Mindfulness. Right, right. You know, there's not going to be a Secretary of Mindfulness. And I tease John Kabat-Zinn. If there was, he would be it, but there's <laughs> never going to be one, you know, as far as we know. So let's start with the institutions that are already out there and infuse these institutions and the current programming with mindfulness. Yeah. I'm Terrence McNally. That's the voice of Tim Ryan, congressman from Ohio. We're talking about his new book, A Mindful Nation, and obviously uh, something he is very passionate about, which is the spread of mindfulness practice um, throughout our society, uh, not as a substitute for anything, but as an opening to everything. Right. Good um, way of putting it. Thanks. Um, we got just a few minutes. If you could... Uh, a couple of the uh, research findings that sort of are where, where you know, you've talked about how uh, that trip that you took kind of traveling around the country, meeting all the scientists doing the work, that just sounds like such a wonderful experience. But a couple of the things that might make someone who's kind of either skeptical or, or, or you know, thinking that this isn't as solid as it might be. Well, you know, I Again, there's, there's science coming online all the time about how the brain changes and the different influences that mindfulness can have where they strap a uh, fMRI on monks' heads and different peoples and can see these changes. The one, the one study that I find very significant, there'll be more coming out, especially with the Marines and the military, um, hopefully in the next few months. But the one that was really stunning to me was the issue that John, uh, the, the study John Kabat-Zinn and Richie Davidson did uh, on psoriasis patients. And they had a control group uh, that went in and got a light box treatment, which is one of the treatments they give for psoriasis. And the one group went in, got their treatment, came back out. The other group uh, went in and practiced mindfulness while they were in the light box. That group that practiced mindfulness while they were in the light box needed four times less the treatments than the control group. Now, as a public policymaker, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, how much is it for Medicare or Medicaid or the health insurance industry for one trip into the light box. Now times that by four and multiply that by the number of people who have psoriasis. You're starting to see real savings. And when you look at what stress does for heart disease, high blood pressure, ulcers, type 2 diabetes, erectile dysfunction, I mean, soup to nuts, stress is really costing us a lot of money. So what we really need is a comprehensive longitudinal study 10-year longitudinal study that can really begin to account for how much savings could be. And I, another thing is the, how the stress that a lot of us are under inflames our bodies. Right. Inflammation, which they, they find is at the root of many chronic illnesses, that there is a linkage between stress, cortisol, and inflammation. Right. 
And it's, again, it's heart disease, high blood pressure, some of these different problems you have with your organs because of the inflammation. And they're starting to find mindfulness as a cooling agent, basically, Mm -hmm. for the inflammation. You're too hot. I mean, you think about it. It makes complete sense. You're, you're, you know, I mean, we say my, my, uh, where I come from, where there's a lot of Italian people, they're telling a story about someone who got them really upset, and they said, and I got hot. Yeah. Well, you did. Yeah. You got hot, you got inflamed, you got stressed out, and that can happen when you have this. And this is why, uh, that's why I'm a congressman and wrote this book, because that has policy implications. The level of inequality has, has health implications on our families. The level of inequality... Uh, and violence has implications on our, our kids' inability to learn. Um, one of the great things is uh, the understanding of how the brain works now. We find out when a young kid or a soldier or any of us are under a lot of stress, the older part of our brain, called your amygdala, where, you, where we handle our fight or flight or our stress response, the amygdala deals with all the information that's coming into our brain at that point. It's all processed in the amygdala. It's fight, flight, or freeze. And these kids who live in violent neighborhoods or are involved in abusive relationships, that's where they have high levels of stress, and it's pretty consistent and constant, so they, it's all processed in their amygdala. Well, you actually need your prefrontal cortex if you really want to have a good quality education. And in your prefrontal cortex, up in your forehead, you have your working memory, um, decision-making, attention span. All of these things are handled in the prefrontal cortex. But when you're under a lot of stress, it doesn't. your prefrontal cortex doesn't even come into play. It's all dealt with in your amygdala. But what mindfulness does, and other practices too, can calm your amygdala down. And when you calm your amygdala down, then the information can be processed into your prefrontal cortex. So these kids that we've have been having such a difficult time figuring out how can we get these kids to learn, when now with the understanding of the brain science, we can figure it out. And what calms your amygdala down? Affection, caring, compassion, empathy, breathing, mindfulness, things that calm you down. So when you have smaller class sizes, so when you have your school's designed in a way where there's a lot of mentorship and integration and then a mindfulness practice and then a general concern for your social and emotional uh, well-being, your awareness, teaching kids how to deal with their emotions. Oh, here comes anger. What do I do when I'm angry? And then walk them through what they do when they're angry to kind of let it go. These things will all calm your amygdala down and allow your prefrontal cortex to work. Now, why in the hell wouldn't we want that in every classroom? Absolutely. You know, I mean, just when you see the science, and we have this going on in schools in Youngstown and Warren, Ohio, and you see these kids respond, and you see the teachers tell you how amazing it is, and then you see the Marines are doing it for mental discipline and awareness, and Google's teaching it, and they have this whole program called Search Inside Yourself, and Procter & Gamble, and Target, and General Mills. Again, why wouldn't we want our young kids to learn this? Why wouldn't we have our doctors teaching this to our patients? I mean, this is, this is about as common sense as it gets. And it's about as conservative as it gets because it's about teaching kids about responsibility. It's about making sure you take care of yourself. It's about making sure you participate in your own health care. You know, so it cuts across the political spectrum in such a beautiful way that I think it could lay the foundation for a real renaissance in the United States. I love that. We're going we're gonna to have to close here. But the other thing that I, that, that I hear in everything you're saying is it is so cost-effective. In other words, relative to um, if you hear wherever it's being applied, 
it basically is, we say time is money, but it's basically you take a little time to be present, to be mindful, um, and it, it, there's no big technology involved. There's no pharmaceuticals involved. There's, you know, yeah. it's, it's so cost-effective in the classroom, in healthcare, in seniors' homes, in the military, wherever it's used. It is so cost-effective that at a time when we feel like we're stretched, not just psychologically and emotionally, but we're stretched economically. This is an intervention that makes sense. Uh, again, the book is A Mindful Nation, How a Simple Practice Can Help Us Reduce Stress, Improve Performance, and Recapture the American Spirit. You can learn more at amindfulnation.org. Uh, Congressman Tim Ryan, thank you so much. Great. Take care. Keep up the good work.